Um, you found us on the map, the Mental Health and Addiction Podcast. I'm Kimberly Walsh, and I'm here with my partners in crime, the mighty Andy Panda, Bernstein, and the incomparable Chris Perry Long. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good, good. So just a quick background on us. Chris Long has been in the industry for many years, dedicating herself to working with families and helping people get into treatment. Andy's been an advocate for mental health and addiction, both as a producer for Crosscheck Radio and through his own experiences. As for me, I'm a person in long-term recovery and the founder of a sober home for women on the Cape called Grady's Landing. We put this podcast together because all three of us are passionate about reducing the stigma around mental health and addiction. We believe that the more light we shed on these topics, the less people will stigmatize and punish those who suffer from these diseases. Moreover, we hope the information we provide and the topics we discuss will help encourage people to seek treatment. Um, so, Andy, I'm going to shift it over to you. Why, I thank you. And uh, I have a new microphone today. I look like I'm uh, a play-by-play -play man. Uh, You're such a professional. Uh, a high, a high <laughs> atop Dodger, Dodger Stadium. So, yeah. Um, so, guys, how are you? How is everybody right now? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for asking. Everything is, uh, is, you know, I can't complain. It's another day above ground and, uh, sun is shining. It's not supposed to be so humid today, which is fantastic. Um, good meetings open up now, Andy, that's, which is phenomenal. Just outside meetings. We're practicing social distancing, but I, you know, we can feel that sense of community coming back with the girls and with, um, other AA members. And it's, it's really, um, a positive thing. That's good to hear. Um, I know Chris had a couple of things to share as well. Chris, talk yeah. to us about what's going on in your world. So um, last Friday, uh, my son's uh, COVID test came back positive. And uh, he had had a lung surgery two years ago prior from vaping. Um, and so you know, you go through that whole wave of emotion because there's been a huge uptick in kids in their 20s and early 30s that have lost their lives to COVID, you know, and it just like I went through this whole wave of emotions like I was really pissed because he's worked so hard to get clean and sober and, you know, COVID's going to take him out. That's kind of like where I was. Um, and then today I had to go and drop some stuff off for him uh, at his apartment and he's got a two and a half year old little girl, <clears throat> uh, my fourth grandchild, and they live in a third story apartment. And I got to see her through the window. And it really, it made my heart hurt that I couldn't just give her a hug or, you know, say hi or hold her or get a kiss or anything. And it's just one of those things. It's like out of sight, out of mind unless it's like in your kitchen, people don't have to deal with it, you know, but then you've got all the news, which we always talk about and all the uncertainties and schools have to make their, they have to provide three plans have to be submitted um, and approved as to how they're going to, you know, deal with COVID in their schools. And I was thinking about this last night because all over the news is how baseball has come back and the Miami whatever they are. Marlins. Marlins had nine guys test positive. And I was thinking to myself, 
now they're being they're being careful you know and maybe they're not being careful i don't know but how are we going to put hundreds of kids back in school and not expect this to spread like wildfire if a if a baseball team can't even keep it contained or you've got the the chatham where when the, the the story broke it was eight then it was nine now it's 13. i haven't even seen an update on that of you know college kids that got together they were not practicing social distancing they were not wearing their masks um and they worked they all worked in restaurants so it's like i try to focus on the things that i have control over but the world is just so out of control it is. And I, I want to add, uh, you know, you talk about the Marlins, not that their games were canceled. They also canceled the Yankees and the Phillies game, that whole series, too, because of the quarantining, because the I believe the Phillies were playing the Marlins. And so th- to be protective, they also postponed their games, too. So it's uh, you know, they are trying to be super careful. And I've been watching it, obviously. No fans in the stands. All the players are wearing um, masks in the dugout. And yet, um, you know, if Major League Baseball is canceling as well as, or some games as well as the NFL has a bunch of players opting out as well of playing and NBA players, um, you're right. It is, it is scary. And I don't think we necessarily have a, um, you know, it's kind of like the plan is not really the plan because a lot of people have different opinions. Kimberly, it's interesting, though, because Kimberly had a totally different perspective than you did, Chris. Yeah. And, and on what? On, on COVID. You're like, oh, yeah, everything's opening up. People are getting back together. You know, it well, seemed like. Practicing social distancing. I mean, I think, I mean, when you attribute all the, um, the, over, the suicides and the overdose from the isolation that it's caused. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from the fact that it's a deadly disease and we all need to be practicing social distancing and wearing our masks but i think that when that happens i think that in order to bring the you know make sure the economy stays on track to make sure people stop are stopped you know stop being depressed and the mental illnesses are skyrocketing and all those things that needs to be addressed as well um you know you can't let go of one to focus only on the other one i think they should be both um looked at you know they're both pandemics like chris had says has said before both this is a pandemic here, and it's a pandemic in the drug and uh, alcohol abuse uh, and mental illness sector too. I'm in the middle of the whole thing. I uh, I'm confused, and as I've said all along, because on one hand you see, uh, you know, if you like George Costanza said on Seinfeld, it's not a lie if you believe it. So you know, I think about it like if I, what I'm, what I mean is, is like, if I can channel my thoughts and say, you know what, I'm going to just focus on what I control, not watch the news and just live my life regardless. Well, yeah, then it, then it's good. Right. But if I, if I don't bury my head in the sand and I pay attention and you listen and you hear it's, it's just confusing. And I think having a lack of a overall focus, you know, from, you know, let's say, here's what we're going to do, right? This is our uniformed plan. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to, we're going to tackle this. And yeah, it sucks to wear a mask. Nobody's taking your freedom away, but we need to do this in order to get, to get things better, you know, to at least, and, 
no, it's very uncomfortable for everyone, but we got to do it. So that's my, that's my two cents on it. But without getting into a political issue, we're going to introduce Scott Allen, our special guest. What do you think about that? I think it's great. Let's go okay. do it. Go for right. it. We'll get off this topic because otherwise we'll, we'll get in a lot of trouble and it'll, and then we'll, we won't, you know, everybody's got an opinion. So let's meet Scott Allen, who is our special guest today. Good morning. Good morning. So, so let me, let me, let me introduce you, Scott. And uh, Scott Allen is a retired chief police chief of police from East Bridgewater in Massachusetts. And he recently retired and um, Scott has over 25 years of law enforcement experience. He is a certified police academy instructor, community activist, and regional law enforcement leader advocating for those struggling with substance use disorders and behavioral health issues. And he played a lead role in creating a regional substance use drop-in center in 2015 as a volunteer with a nonprofit, EB Hope. And he and his uh, partner in, uh, in the fight, Chief Mike Bottieri from um, Plymouth, um, really created a revolutionary program. And so Scott's going to kind of talk to us today about what he's doing today and how it all came to be. How about that? Great. Well, well, thank you, Andrew, for the, uh, the uh, introduction. And, uh, you know, Chris and Kimberly, it's uh, great to uh, be with you here this morning. Yeah, my, uh, my career, as it, it worked its way, started in 1994 in law enforcement. And, you know, a lot of what's happened here in the last, and I say it's about the last eight years or so, it's, it's really happened organically. You know, when I started out my law enforcement career, my vision was that I would retire, you know, from law enforcement um, with a, a goal to maybe uh, do some instruction and teaching at some point, which I've been doing for the past uh, 10, uh, 15 years, you know, at the police academies. But uh, in 2012, for me, uh, at the time, I was a, a, a drug task force commanding officers for a regional task force. And, you know, we were in the throes of the Oxycontin crisis. And I find myself, all we were doing at that time really was, you know, Oxycontin cases and uh, investigations. And I got introduced to Susan Silver, who is a, a, a local uh, resident here in East Bridgewater and a, a mother of uh, a family member who had been struggling with opioids. Um, you know, use disorder. And, you know, Susan started EB Hope and I started attending the EB Hope meetings with the, the idea to learn more about, you know, um, you know, addiction and, and the science of addiction and how we can help others. And just from there, it just it grew organically. You know, in 2012 with EB Hope, we started doing some informational, you know, community events to make the, 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 the uh, community aware of substance use disorder, because at that time, there really was a lot of unknowns. I mean, that even it, it took me to get involved with EB Hope and then later with, with PARI, the Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative, to really learn about addiction and the science of addiction, and that's a disease. You know, because my training and focus, you know, had been, you know, investigations, seizures, arrests, and, you know, that's all we really knew as police officers. And for us, it was this dramatic shift EB Hope was the start for me. And then Pari, for those that aren't familiar, in Gloucester, Massachusetts at the time, the police chief, you know, really stepped outside the box and said, if you come to the police station, we'll help connect you with treatment. 
And it really was just a, a it, from that point, from 2012 on, it's really been an ongoing um, learning environment for myself, learning about substance use disorders, about the science behind it, and really learning from the experts, because police, we're not the experts. I, I say this all the time. We have this front row seat, but we want to rely on the experts in public health, in the addiction and science world to help us better serve our public. And, and really, that's kind of how things have evolved for me organically. So, um, so uh, you know, so you and Chief Bottieri kind of um, partnered together and, and, and really became a very um, nationally recognized organization with your previous in your previous role the partnership that you created can you talk a little bit about the kind of the partnerships you forged in the Plymouth community and kind of how it manifested itself to as you said organically to where you are now sure so at uh, in 2015 I'd, I'd first helped create a, a local drop-in center through EB Hope with the with Susan Silver and in the team there and as we found that there was a need to, to provide resources and information, at the same time that we had opened the drop-in center in East Bridgewater, you know, Chief Bateri down in Plymouth had partnered with Beth Israel Deaconess and was doing post-overdose outreach work. And throughout 2016, uh, we, we, we engaged quite often and, and were learning about one another's initiatives uh, down in, in Plymouth. He had partnered with three other communities in BID Plymouth. We had you know, expanded our drop-in center to take on a regional approach here in the greater Brockton area with some neighboring towns and in in, in our partners in Brockton and the Brockton Champion Center. And, um, you know, what, what we, we did is we exchanged ideas and it really just morphed into, you know, we took on some of the post-overdose outreach work that Plymouth was doing. Plymouth opened a drop-in center down in their um, uh, region, which then expanded to a second one or actually a third one in Wareham. But we, we just we, we decided that for us to really have an impact with our initiatives, it only made sense to do it on a regional scale. And at the time, we were able to, to work with all of the chiefs of police, all 27 chiefs of police in Plymouth County, who all signed a memorandum of understanding to commit to being a part of what became Plymouth County Outreach in uh, late 2016, early 17. And then working tirelessly with the district attorney, Tim Cruz, and Sheriff Joseph McDonald's Drug Task Force, you know, we, we, we found that this collaboration needed to engage. We had the law enforcement commitment, but we really needed to show and work with our, our health care partners. So it just expanded. We, we got the, the region's hospitals to, to buy in, if you will, and to collaborate with us. We formed our advisory board of chiefs and doctors. And it just expanded to where the entire county even though each in, in municipality might have had their own initiatives, you know, working on a larger scale made the most sense. Because what we found was that early on, 40% of the people that overdosed weren't overdosing in the town that they lived in, but were overdosing in a neighboring community that prior to Plymouth County Outreach, there was really no information sharing. There was no formal process to share that information and not only share it, but then connect those at-risk individuals to referrals to treatment and resources. And then the other big piece that we added early on was what we found is educating and arming family members and loved ones with support and information to the resources. We found that by showing, and you touched on it earlier, I heard you talk about stigma. That stigma is so strong that not only 
persons that are str struggling with substance use disorders are still, you know, dying because they, they, that stigma is so strong. They don't seek treatment or, you know, family members and loved ones can't, you know, get out and find the, 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 the resources or are afraid to get out there, you know, so we, we just worked tirelessly to have this collaboration grow. And it really became the group you didn't want to not be a part of. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how, and I, we're going to hear from Chris and Kimberly, but isn't it interesting how um, I met you guys a couple of years ago and I remember asking you a question about, you know, it really sounded like police work really has changed in a lot of ways because there's more of a, um, uh, a different approach in, in areas like substance use disorders and things where you can't really lock people up anymore. You know, that's not really the answer, how you, how you solve the problem. You kind of were ahead of the curve right now with what's going on out there as far as the way police work is being talked about. Yeah, yeah I mean, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. I think that what you guys did, okay, down on the Cape was nobody wanted to follow in your footsteps over the bridge. Well, you know what I mean? Like up in this area, like what you guys did, I mean, Pari for the first, Pari was amazing. What Pari was doing was great. They just didn't, when they initiated their Pari program, they just didn't have the power to get the word out enough. And it was groups like you guys and what you guys did down in, in East Bridgewater. I mean, you involved Bridgewater State University. You guys encompassed every demographic person, place, thing. You, you brought everything in. I remember the built first a community. Time. They built yep. a community. Of, I remember walking into the, to, the EB, to the church, to one of their drop-ins. And I saw you and I, we had a history already. And I was like trying to figure out where I knew you from, where I knew you from. And I was like, wow, I had no idea. And the whole, the, like you walked in there and it was welcoming. There were, there were people of all ages. There were families, you walk, you watch a family come in and they're so broken and they don't know who to talk to. And it's like, you're greeted by a greeter and they walk you through A, B and C. And if you have your loved one with you, you have a, you had an area where your loved one could could actually speak freely about what was going on and you busted your butts to get help for that person, regardless if they had insurance, money or no insurance, you made sure that there was no stigma that you broke so many walls. But what saddened me was that nobody like up here wanted to jump on that bandwagon. Like you, if you look at the statistics for like the Cape, the Cape was losing people like there's no tomorrow. And slowly but surely, because you're, of your door knocking, because of your drop-in centers, because of what you did, because you were in front of this, your numbers drastically dropped. Cutting edge. They were cut, really cutting edge with their, their program. Yeah. Um, it, it, I appreciate that. I mean, I think the one thing that we you know, always we're mindful of is, is we're looking to build trust because, and now more than ever, law enforcement, you know, obviously we need to build trust in communities. We need to build trust, trust in, you know, marginalized, underserved population. And we need to make sure that as law enforcement, we are serving every population of, of, of individuals. And really that's, 
you know, it was, a, uh, you know, the, the, the really the basis of the foundation. It did not matter who you were or where you lived. If we could connect with you, we wanted to connect you to the resources that existed. And it really was taking relationships, you know, establishing relationships that lead to partnerships, which really lead to truly collaboration. And then at the end of the day, it's, it's putting aside egos because and one of the challenges in, in, that I see across the country is, you know, there's, there's, there's that competitive nature. Well, whose area is this? It's all of our, air, our area to work together to collectively connect people to treatment and long-term recovery so that, you know, lives can be saved and not, you know, fighting over, well, you know, who is the, the lead agency or who is, you know, and who, who, who are you partnering with? We partner with everyone. Do, do you see, and Kimberly, I don't know if you have any thoughts. You're being, uh, you're, you're hiding in your little uh, box over there. Tell us, do uh, you have any thoughts? I think she's frozen. She's frozen. Um, so given given what you're saying, I mean, so really the face of, I mean, do you kind of see, you know, from meeting you guys, understanding what you're doing and then hearing about the face of, you know, what they're talking about today with police work, um, you know, it's kind of like police are challenged now, law enforcement's challenged with, you know, wanting to be looked at as a resource in a lot of ways, not just a the you know the enemy right i mean that seems like that's really been um kind of your mission on some level correct yeah we, we talk about smart policing i i always use the term it's really community policing 101 we, we want to be careful as far as you know i always said we don't want to become an entity we're not you know treatment experts we're not meant to help experts what we can do is we can educate our officers and our teams to have a better understanding of substance use disorders, mental health disorders that, you know, I, I call it policing through a public health lens, because, you know, really what we need to do is collaborate more than ever with our public health colleagues who are the experts. You know, and that's the one thing we always I always found myself and I know, Mike, when we would talk, we always found ourselves saying, hey, we we stay when we're not going to step outside of our wheelhouse. But we do have this front row seat that if we can collectively, you know, adopt this, you know, this shift in policing, you know, as to looking at the underlying causes, the social determinant health needs of individuals and families, if we can look at it through that lens and not necessarily and always thinking of crime, but the underlying causes. And then if you know how to navigate and, and have a, some familiarity with the treatment, substance use, mental health treatment system, you can then connect those individuals and families to the right resources. And really it is that community policing one-on-one, you're going to see your calls for service decrease to those repeat locations and individuals because you've been able to connect them to the resources that they truly need. Right. So there's some outcomes there. There's some measurable outcomes through the work that you're, you're doing or, you know, with, with like organizing and having um, a holistic approach to this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, I, I don't know. I, I, you got, it looks like we might have Kimberly back there in our little, in the box um, in center square, like uh, Hollywood Squares, and um, uh, um, you could be following well, my internet. Sorry Paul about Lynn. that. Um, what are you? What are some of your thoughts, Kimberly? 
I was just going to say that I've, I've seen it on the front lines and, and I think the, that your movement is actually making some changes because a lot of the girls that I talked to are saying that, that they were helped their last line of defense. Their last hope was a police officer who actually cared, who took the time to help them get into treatment and then, and, and still they stay in touch with them. And I thought that was fantastic. Um, so Great point. You know, kudos to you. It's working. Yeah. Well, so that's why I hear, you know, when, like I was saying, you know, you hear the news and people are like, you know, uh, oh, they're going to defund the police or they're going to come up with different kinds of, you know, oh, there's going to be more social workers and things like that. And I, knowing you guys understand what you've tried, what you've accomplished with, with your initiatives. And so I'm like, well, it might not be such a bad thing to be able to have people who have a general understanding of something that is not necessarily is more of a mental health issue or a, a, a disease rather than a criminal thing. So it might not be the worst thing in the world, but I think it, if it's kind of explained in a better way, it might, you know, it, it might resonate more because like, like you, I mean, you guys, like Chris was saying, I mean, you guys really were, and are cutting edge in your approach. So fast forward, and I, I, I love to get your take on that. Yeah, no, I mean, well, one of the things I, I, I might not have stressed enough and, and talked about as far as partners, the recovery community. Early on, we learned that we needed to collaborate and partner with the recovery community. And and the neat thing with our uh, program early on was, you know, I, I had the, the, the opportunity to do uh, about 30 home visits with the recovery coach. And, you know, the, the recovery coach that I partnered with, you know, we shared this publicly because he shared his story publicly. He and I knew each other from my prior experience as an investigator, you know, 20 years prior. But so what the neat thing was, was that he and I, here we are, we're, we're partners, we're a team knocking on a door together, sitting down in living rooms and kitchen tables with you know, you know, individuals who was at the, the throes of suffering from substance use disorder, family members and loved ones. That was really, you know, just a powerful, you know, uh, experience for myself. And then to, to really build on that. So when we talk about those partners, it's law enforcement, it, it's the, the public health, the recovery community. It, I say they are the, the core foundation of why this works because I, you know, you need someone with that lived experience. You know, we can talk all day long, but if you've, you know, kind of, you haven't been there, done that, or can't put yourself in someone else's shoes. I mean, that's really powerful. Um, but, but so I wanted to highlight that, but the other part back to the, when we talk about the defunding the police, I've always said from day one, uh, we envisioned our model morphing, which it has had. It, initially, it was officers with the recovery coach knocking on door. But at some point, I, I certainly see I see the ability to do a co-response model. I, I, I see the most effective ways to do it in a co-response. There are absolutely cases and situations where the behavioral health expert, they should handle the situation themselves. Right. And you don't necessarily need a, an officer involved. But by having that collaboration where the the day-to-day -day operations have public safety working with those behavioral health experts and collectively deciding, is this the type of situation that warrants a co-response or is it maybe, maybe it just, it needs a law enforcement officer or maybe it's a, a combination of other partners. So I mean, I really see the evolution of this being, you know, this inter, you know, the intersection of 
public safety and public health, behavioral health experts making those decisions together. I, you know, I, I feel and I'm concerned that by, you know, the shift of saying, hey, just, you know, take this away from law enforcement. You know, police officers really can help their behavioral health experts, you know, on on cases where the behavioral health expert may not even be familiar with these families and people. But so by having that that sharing of information at the front lines, I, I really feel like I'm hoping that that is 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 going to be how this works out. But I do see at some point police taking a step back and saying, hey, you are the behavioral health experts. We've helped use our, our front row seat to you know put, promote this movement. Now let's bring it to that, you know, 2.0, 3.0 level. How, how do you think it's been um, on, on in your world? I mean, how, how you know, in Plymouth County, I mean, how did you see the, the response? Do you find that people really responded well to that approach? Yeah, one of the things that we took on early was, you know, we, we established a data-driven strategy. And I think one of the things we learned from our public health experts is you talk about efficacy and you talk about, you know, research and analysis. We, so we absolutely, you know, we're, we're looking at that early on. You know, I can tell you, you know, in our engagement, you know, in, in, in my community, we, we, I had an awesome team led by, you know, Sergeant William Patterson. I mean, our engagement rate, you know, on these outreach visits was about 70 five percent which when if you had said five years early to some of the experts you know three out of four doors you know you're going to be sitting down at a kitchen table or a living room you know you know the experts would said there's no way that's going to happen but you know the engagement in the reception was absolutely um astounding you know collectively uh you know across the county the engagement rate is somewhere between 65 and percent and higher you know, there's absolutely individuals who don't want treatment, but even those interactions typically are positive and saying, hey, thanks for covering. I'm not interested. But what we saw is by showing that we cared, by breaking down the stigma, by bringing the resources to their living rooms and, and kitchen tables, we found people would reach back out a week, a month or two months later and say, hey, you know what? Appreciate you coming by. You know, I'd, I'd like to take you up on that offer to get connected to, to a resource or mom and dad would say, hey, my son or daughter is now ready. Do you think you can you know, still connect us with the recovery coach or with the clinician? So, you know, the, the engagement, again, was was really astounding and continues to be astounding. Even in the COVID, I still talk with our coordinator from Plymouth County Outreach, uh, you know, Victoria Butler. And, and she, even though they're doing a lot of the work remotely, they've still had uh, a successful engagement. So it's you know, the stigma really is the piece that this type of program, you know, breaks down those barriers because it shows that you care. Um, well said. And and so that manifested itself to where you are today. So if you could tell us about how you transformed kind of the great work you did in Plymouth County and how you, um, you know, took that and, and built your own organization to try and um, take it to a whole nother level. Sure. So in, in January of 2020, this past January, I, had, I announced my uh, decision to retire from the department to pursue my passion to, to work with others and share what I had you know, learned and helped to create you know, through these initiatives in Plymouth County. You know, and I was able to partner with a, and form a new company with a group out of Virginia called Community Services Solutions. And the program that we um, have created is called Operation to Save Lives. 
and it's it's utilizing the basic principles that were the foundation for building you know the drop-in center in east bridgewater eb hope and then that what we the foundation for what we built through plymouth county outreach and again it's it's that the foundation of collaboration building relationships and build partnerships you know and i i had struggled for the last year you know probably as as the chief in east bridgewater where i was so engaged in our initiative with plymouth county outreach you know, I, 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 I got, was sitting on the Governor's Council for Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence because we saw a lot of co-occurring issues with victims of domestic violence and suspects of domestic violence with both substance use and mental health disorders. Um, working with our district attorney, Tim Cruz, I had a, uh, created um, in our department, you know, a, an innovative program called the Kid in Need program because we were identifying, you know, drug-endangered children not knowing it when we respond to these, house, these calls. And what we found, you know, in learning from the district attorney's office and their training was that we were, there was a gap there. We weren't collaborating with our school partners and, and making sure that they understood with, within reasonable information sharing agreements that, you know, the, the, the student that might be, you know, not doing well in school or falling asleep in class, it wasn't because they were a problem child. It was because they had been exposed to either trauma, violence, or um, you know, substance use within the house and not their problem, but, you know, the problem of mom and dad or a sister or brother. So it really, you know, it expanded. And I was challenged in my last year where I found myself, you know, being committed so much to the Plymouth County Outreach Initiative, doing presentations, going in diff around different parts of the country, that I really had this strong desire to share and create, you know, um, you know, this program but doing it, you know, uh, you know, on a, as, as an active chief of police, it just, I couldn't do both roles. So, you know, my background was in education. I always wanted to be a teacher. I had been teaching at the police academy for 15 years. It means changing what, you know, the complete program, we will certainly do that, you know, based off of the data and the research. And then the other thing through, you know, Operation to Save Lives is that, you know, I've got this ability on a national you know, landscape to really share with others um you know I'm, I'm engaged with you know I've, I've done so much work in advocacy with with pari i was Pari's, just gonna say i was just gonna say are you are you bringing in pari because pari well, it's pari and, those, those lines yep so pari i will always promote and 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 push for the for the pari message and mission and I, I, I talk with Ali, you know, you know, we've talked regularly about, you know, how we can support one another. You know, there's there's other, you know, groups out there too that we're looking to expand. You know, I, Scott, I, I what's the acronym for PARI? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yep, so the, our listeners the Police Assisted Addiction and Recovery Initiative, you know, which started in 2015 and really for the collective body and law enforcement, that was the game changer for all of us. It really stopped you know, exact leaders in law enforcement, law enforcement in general, to really look at, you know, the, the science of addiction differently. And, and it then, didn't even, John, it was you know, yeah, it was just. But it was finding that, you know, that the law enforcement, you know, and the public, you know, the police officers, they do have that front row seat to a lot of these issues. Because unfortunately, you know, when people are in crisis, they call police. They call 911. That's what we teach our kids to do. Right. So, you know, even though we, you know, as, as police officers, when we get to these calls, we may not be the best suited professional to handle the incident, 
by now educating our officers to recognize that, hey, this is an underlying substance use disorder or co-occurring and or co-occurring mental health disorder. By recognizing that, we now can bring in the experts. And, and really, that's the crux of what we, what we, we, we uh, you know, promote through the operation to save lives and through our model is partner with the experts, work collaboratively, because there's a lot of challenges. And, and, and that's what the value we bring through O2SL is that, you know, I can share the challenges and the obstacles that you're going to encounter, you know, just through these collaborative models. I can, I can share how we work through those challenges, how we overcame those challenges, and then how to, you know, really build the partnerships. You know, again, it's, you know, it, you really, what I found a lot of times is that different entities might say, geez, I love what you're doing in the substance use. We want to do this in uh, our own, you know, siloed area. And I would say, hey, let's just do it together because the more silos that we create, the, the, the more barriers in the, yep. in the, the 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 less chance that there'll be information sharing just like I, I i talked about with drug endangered children you know in 2012 13 14 15 it was never in my mindset as a police officer hey i'm at a domestic violence call and there's children that live in this home that are exposed to this trauma and the trauma and the impact that has on their lives which we know through the aces study adverse childhood experiences you know, by understanding that as a police officer, I'm not saying, hey, now I'm this expert in drug and children, but by training the officers to recognize that you've got to deal with the domestic situation, you've now got to look at those underlying causes for the victim first, you got to look at the suspect, but then you got to look at those children and say, how do I help connect them to resources that they need? And it's really that collaborative approach. It's, it's... go ahead, Andy. Oh, I had a question. Okay. So I would imagine maintaining credibility is probably incredibly important in this work or maintaining that, you know, you uncover through some of the people that you encounter, maybe there's um, more to this, right? Maybe they have information about a particular, you know, um, like, I don't know if situations ever arise where you're like, okay, that person has access to or has information on a drug ring or things like that you know how do how do you like do you kind of not disregard that or do you kind of like how do you how do you how do you maintain your your um your confidence or yeah. your and and still police yeah that's no, a great question and it, it was something that we recognized right from the start and, and it was because of engaging with public health experts right from the start the one concern that we heard when we started getting into this arena, if you will, of, of engaging with at-risk populations was, well, you are police officers and you, the unintended consequences, you're really just gonna, you know, the, the perception will be is that you're looking to pursue investigations cases. So we were very clear from the start, even in our, our mess, not only in our messaging, but in our protocols was that this is no not investigative in, in any such way. And we segregated it. What we, we told chiefs, fellow chiefs, and, and, and recommend now through our program is do not, you cannot have a, 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 an, an investigative body interacting with an outreach team because the credibility of your program, you will lose yeah. that credibility. 
So we were very clear on that. What we found, coincidentally enough, is that organically, our intention, and we make it clear, hey, we're here on an outreach visit. We want to connect you to resources. We want to help you. We're not here to talk about anything enforcement-wise. We're not here to talk about you know, you know, any type of uh, criminal investigation. And you make that clear. And we, we in our, our two-day training, we make that clear. We, we spend about a half a day on role-playing because it's so critically important to stress that because the one negative situation or interaction that turns into that that's going to spread throughout the, you know, uh, you know, community and, and you will lose that credibility. So we're very clear. But what we found organically is that you would have family members, loved ones and actual uh, substance use disorder individuals say, oh, by the way, you know, yeah. he, here's my drug you know, dealer. And what we would do is we would just pass that on organically to the proper resources. But we never commingle investigations with outreach. Got it. I'm amazed that sometimes when you're you you start working with somebody and it's a process. Some are, you know, go in, want to go into treatment just like that. Others, it takes time. So you're building that trust. You're building, you know, we said it early on, you have somebody come in and they're kind of like checking it out. And then maybe a month later, two months later, three months later, they're like, I'm ready. And when they're ready, they like throw up all the information, you know, about, cause they want to get rid of they When they're done, they're done. They want those people out of their lives. And they're vulnerable and, you know, they don't want to get connected to those people, but it's really scary because like the, the signs that say, kill your local heroin dealer, right? I hate those things because my kids in the heat of their addiction were dealing like not because they wanted to, but because they, they had to in order to feed their habit. And when you help somebody understand that and you, you break down that wall, that stigma, you know, people are more open and willing to share that kind of information. Um, you know, I, I've had kids call me and they've, they've begged their dealers, if they come to them, please don't sell to them. You know, please, I'm trying to stop, please don't. And they'll still deal, you know, because I don't know. I mean, I've never witnessed it, but I guess when you're sick and you really want it, you know, you'll pay whatever the price is. Um, and I love to hear when they say, okay, you know what, they're not a bad person, but they're not a good person either. And, and with, as far as police goes, you know, if I, if I introduce a police officer to somebody who is in active addiction, you know, they're automatically going to go, I'm going to get arrested for what I'm doing, you know, and if, if this particular police officer has more resources than myself or someone that I know, then, you know, you just have to show them that hope. And, and it is about credibility. I mean, I've never heard of anybody saying that they went into a, a EB Hope or a Plymouth outreach and somebody got arrested because for whatever reason, you know, I mean, I think, I think Gloucester was a great segue for you guys uh, because what Gloucester did was like, they never, they never imagined, I mean, I remember watching the numbers go up, but they never imagined that they would get to the numbers that they got. And finally, you know, it came out that, listen, ethically, I guess, if you walk in and you have an outstanding warrant, we're going to have to arrest you for that warrant. But what they did was, we will walk you through the process and get you the help. We're not going to arrest you and, sorry, can't help you. They walked you through that process. They helped you take care of that warrant and they made sure that you got the help that you needed, which is, it's crazy. People don't hear about the good stuff that 
police are doing. They only hear about the bad stuff. I heard Kimberly earlier, you talked about, you know, some of the, the, the input, the feedback you've heard. I mean, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, absolutely. I was, uh, I was a little bit shocked too, to find that not one, not two, but several of the girls have, that have come through said, you know, when I finally, when I was finally ready, I had, cause they, you know, they usually have the same police officer, you know, cause they're in the same town, they're with the same people. So the same officer is the one who gets involved and he sees them time and time again. And instead of just throwing up his hands, you know, he'll actually take them, get them to treatment. He'll put them in touch with the right resources, which I thought was absolutely amazing. Um, and what I wondered is that our other police departments uh, absorbing this, are they kind of implementing these things? And, and do you have plans to continue to expand cross country? How big do you, do you think it'll get? Yeah, I mean, right now I've I've probably had engagement, you know, with um, you know law enforcement, public safety, public health leaders in about twenty of the the states right now. You know, our our you know we, we absolutely are looking to share this model across the country. There's a lot of great work that's already being done in different parts of the country. You know, I, I've I've partnered up with some other you know chiefs, active and or retired chiefs in other states who are in this similar arena, and we're sharing a lot of you know, the similarities, but then there's a lot of differences. I mean, you know, one of the big challenges early on, you know, for Massachusetts, we were the first state in, in the country for law enforcement to be carrying naloxone, Narcan, and talking about harm reduction. Quincy, our partners in the Quincy police were the first in the country to, to be carrying that, you know, thanks to the, the work of uh, Dr. Dan Muse from uh, Brockton Hospital, who, who signed that first open script. But Great guy. You know, I, Dr. Muse is, is what a great partner. Yeah. But as I'm talking with different states, like, I, you know, one of the engagements is in talking with some counterparts and colleagues in Texas. And they're, you know, at the point now where it's, you know, some departments are just signing on uh, on to carrying naloxone where, you know, we were doing that, you know, 2008, you know, 2012, 13. So you do see in different parts of the country, there's a different uh, perception. And that's one of the goals of, of O2SL is that we want to get out there in these different parts of the country and share, you know, what has, you know, had some early success. And, and again, when I talk success, you know, our numbers are still across the country are going up. I mean, I'm tracking this daily and you're seeing, you know, unfortunately, the 2019 numbers, the CDC just put out a, an early report that it looks like we're going to see those numbers go up in 2019 uh, from 2018. And then 2020, we know, is tracking, unfortunately, a result of COVID-19 or, or, or it appears to be a result of the impacts of some of the consequences of COVID-19 that 2020 is targeting up. So, I mean, there's still so much work to be done. There are definitely other states that are doing some great work. And then there's definitely some other places where I think we can really bring some value for them to change that perception because there's still different places where, you know, it's, you know, Hey, the enforcement, the investigative side is the way to approach this. And again, I have always said that there's, there's definitely a, a, a piece for that to target those, those distributors at the, the high end that are, that are, that are killing people daily. But then there's others that, you know, is there a, a better outcome if we can connect them to treatment instead of uh, putting them in jail and then seeing that cycle of, of re that revolving door? Right. We can't I, arrest I, ourselves out of this. No. So I have a question. So obviously, and I'm learning this and as I get older, you know, personnel is probably the biggest 
thing to carry out missions right um in my opinion like you know on paper it's like okay well we want to do this 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 but do we have the horses to help us implement so when you're talking to um you know any of your clients or any other police departments um you know is there a kind of a a a certain type of person you're looking for um you know like if if like if you might assess, yeah, your guys, you know, you may not have the right view at the top or the front row seat person. Are there people, you know, will you have like a, like a criteria of who might make sense for this kind of role? Yeah. So to me, that's a two part answer. So the first part is at the leadership end, you know, you have to have the willingness from the top if, if the buy-in is not there to promote this proactive outreach type, act, um, you know, engagement, if you don't have the buy-in at the top, and I'm talking if the chiefs, the command staff, the fire department, EMS, you know, if you don't have all the partners at the, the executive level that are willing to do this, you're going you're, you're gonna to encounter challenges throughout. So, and that's why when we designed our, our, our O2SL, you know, curriculum, you know, we, 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 we needed, I re- recognize Roland, you've got to segregate those because, you know, our curriculum looks a lot different at the executive level does, does it, than it does for the boots on the ground, if you will, because, you know, th- there's different things that you've got to think about from the executive level. And it's that, you know, policy making. But again, it's got, you've got to have that buy-in. And when you talk about the, the, the outreach specialist, uh, and this is public safety, we call it first responder outreach team now. It's, it's police, it's EMS, it's EMTs, paramedics, you know, working in collaboration with recovery coaches, you know, clinicians, social workers. You know, I always say it's, it, there's no curriculum, uh, there's no set, it's got to be this type of person. They've got to have a willingness to listen, to be open to new ideas in policing, in public safety, and to really have a willingness to it, to, to, to just jump in, adopt harm reduction principles. You know, if you have that willingness to be open to change and to looking at this through a different lens, that public health lens, that's really the key thing. And most department leaders are going to know who those people are. And most departments are filled with those types. I mean, police officers, every police officer wants to help someone. And I think finding the right fit within each department, you know, it, it's not, it's not a challenge. It's just, it's finding, you know, sometimes it's everyone wants to do it and you just can't have, you know, every officer engaged, you know, in, in this role. So sometimes you do see that. Uh, ladies. How do you, Scott, how do you get them to that place? I mean, do you have, is it through education? Yeah. What kind of, you know, are you physically going to the different departments and, and asking them to, to implement these programs? Yeah. So right now that, I mean, one of the challenges of COVID for, for me and for and my newer endeavor here is, is getting out there. So what, what a lot of what I've been doing is having, you know, conversations like this, sitting down on a, on a zoom or a Skype and just talking to leaders and, and sharing with them, you know, the, the, the value that I found in my role as the chief and in my community and in our region and, and, and how it helped us, not only as a community, but as a department, you know, we really built up a lot of trust within our community by, you know, adopting, you know, not only, you know, the Plymouth County outreach work, but then expanding it into all these different areas. So it, 
it's it's having those challenges. What we do is we'll go out and we will do site visits as you know travel allows us to and assess because a lot of people are doing some work in this arena, but you know they they may not have that quite that collaboration and that's where i think the expertise that we can bring to the table is you know we can find those gaps and then very easily and even just in some of my you know zoom and skype calls i've been able to give some direction and suggestions on how to fine-tune things and enhance existing models and so and what the work that i'm doing now is if if you have no program we can help you at the leadership level and help you you know get the boots on the ground growing but if you have an existing operation or program we can help assess it and then you know, based on our experience, tell you how we can improve that, you know, collaboration even, even more so. Can you give us a, uh, yeah, thank you. This has been really informative and I, Love it. you know, yeah, talking to, I mean, Scott's so, so dedicated and um, does really good work. Uh, can you give your website address and how people can learn more about your organization and sure. how they can get in contact? So we're on the, uh, we have a website. Um, it's it's O, the letter O, the number two, S is in Sam, Lima.com. So we're on, on the web at O2SL.com. You know, we're also on LinkedIn um, under Operation To Save Lives. And what I'm finding is I've been engaging, you know, because of uh, some of the travel restrictions, we're finding a lot of engagement through, you know, it's, you know, through LinkedIn and, 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 and collaborating with other partners. So we can be uh, found at those two late locations. We've actually got a couple of um, video webinars coming out um, very shortly. We've got a, a great board of directors of um, some active retired police chiefs, uh, a public health uh, doctor of public health, uh, Dr. Nathaniel Horowitz Willis, who's actually at the Mass College of Pharmacy and Human Services. And we're going to be doing a live webinar uh, later on in, in August um, with a panel, a national panel of public health and law enforcement experts from a, a couple of different states to really share, you know, some Excellent. of the work that's been going on. But uh, yeah, no, that'd be, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to share. Um, so thank you for coming on and uh, please reach out to Scott if you uh, are interested in learning more. Kimberly, so thank you. And uh, Kimberly, take us out. We're gonna, um, Scott, we definitely wanna have you back though, if you'll come back, if we didn't scare you away. No, I, I appreciate it. And it was great meeting you, Kimberly. Great seeing you again, Chris. And uh, nice to see you I, too. I definitely look forward to, to circling back and, and talking some more uh, with, with your group. Thank great. you. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks. Well, that's our show for today, guys. Um, as you know, we do this podcast not only to help reduce stigma, but to be of service to anyone struggling with addiction or mental illness. We have access to an entire network of professionals, and we can help you find the right fit for your needs. So please reach out to us on our Facebook page or at the numbers given below our names during the show. You've been listening to The Map, and thank you all again for your support of our mission, and we'll see you Friday at 930. Have a great rest of the week. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.